continue in our uh, pursuit of knowledge from the book of Acts. This morning we'll be covering the verses in the 11th chapter, starting with the 19th and reading through verse 26. And we'll read through the end of the chapter, through verse 30. By this time, remember, first of all, that, that the book of Acts is a historical book. <clears throat> There's a considerable amount of doctrine in it, but it is primarily a, a historical book. It is the account of how, how the church began and how the churches sprang from the one that did begin. Uh, and so we have in the book of Acts a very strong encouragement for our very existence today as a church. Also, by this particular, at this particular time in the book of Acts, Saul has been converted and is now Paul and is an apostle. The great persecutor of Christians now becomes persecuted, uh, and he is a, a very major force. God uses him in a very large way in the establishment of churches uh, and the planting of churches throughout the region of the then known world. Also, the the Apostle Peter has risen to a, a considerably prominent position in the order of things in the early part of the Christian faith and in the church. Uh, the names of other of, of the apostles will uh, be notably uh, more diminished as we pursue, uh, pursue our studies in the book of Acts. Uh, we will see, for example, in the next chapter, the, the, the Apostle John will be mentioned for the last time in the book of Acts. Uh, others of the apostles are hardly mentioned at all, and the writings become mostly about the, from this particular point on, mostly, not entirely, about the operations of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul and some through the Apostle Peter. Uh, there are some difficult times ahead uh, for the believers of the first century. Uh, the, the real blood persecutions, in spite of the fact that Paul was a tormentor of believers, uh, the real blood persecutions were about to begin, and they would come uh, not any more at the hands of the Jews than they would at the hands of the political forces uh, beyond the, the Jewish influence, which would be, of course, Roman. And we will see that happening as well. Now, the fact is that being a follower of Jesus Christ in those days was an expensive proposition in terms of its cost. Not that it cost money, but it cost inconvenience, it cost loss of friends, loss of family, and ultimately, for some, loss of life. So uh, being a, a follower of Christ was expensive in those days. Uh, it doesn't carry with it today nearly the same price that it did then. And the result, of course, is that the brand of Christianity uh, becomes more diminished when it doesn't cost more. If you know it, the same old story, the same old expression applies to the values of being in Christ as it does to any other commodity. It doesn't cost much. It isn't worth much. And, and that's generally true about everything. If you, don't, if, if, if you give a child too much too easy, he loses his sense of value for the things which he has getting, uh, gotten and begins to consider that, that it is his right to get more as easily as what he has gotten in the past. And that's part of the way we are trained. But it is a true statement. Generally speaking, if it doesn't cost anything, it isn't worth anything. If it doesn't cost much, it isn't worth much. And, and Christianity in the first century cost quite a bit. And it was worth quite a bit. And the, and the character and the quality 
of those who followed after Jesus Christ that we are reading about here in the, in the first century in general terms far outmatch and outshine the general quality of Christians today. And these, these are in general terms, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, many of them are social, economic reasons, uh, political reasons as well. Uh, we'll probably touch on some of those in, in our pursuit as we go along, not entirely uh, will we touch them today. <coughs> the persecution that, that was begun at the martyrdom, at the death of Stephen, one of the first deacons in the church at Jerusalem, became a very energetic one. It was primarily a persecution of Jewish Christians by non-Jewish non-Christians, by Jewish non-Christians. And, and, and the persecution that took place was primarily, not entirely, but primarily one of deprivation, jail mostly, uh, loss of property. Very few lost their lives, Stephen being one, and there would be others, of course. James would be one, would, who would, uh, James the Apostle, would, would, would lose his life very shortly after what we read here. Uh, but generally the persecution was intense enough so that those provincial Jews who had come to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit of God spoke to them uh, through the languages of these unknown fishermen uh, and others at the church at Jerusalem on that day. You may remember that they all came from all over and they heard their native tongues being spoken by these unlettered people. They were provincial Jews. Provincial Jews in the book of Acts were referred to, at least in the context of their life in the church at Jerusalem, they were, they were referred to as Grecians. They were Greek Jews. Any Jew that wasn't wasn't a, uh, a, a, a Palestinian Jew, was considered by the Palestinian Jews to be a Grecian because the common language of all of these people was Greek and, and, and their native tongues were either Persian or Egyptian or, or some other language which they heard on the day of Pentecost. So these provincial Jews who were the Grecians in the Palestinian church were the ones who were scattered that we're going to read about here. Now they who were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they were come to Antioch spoke unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, before I go any farther, I must qualify this. These Grecians are not Jews. These are Greeks. These are Gentile unbelievers. Sometimes you can confuse the scripture by the, by the, the, the common usage of certain uh, words. But anyway, they, they, they came there and uh, they preached uh, unto the Greeks. And they preached to the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, some of the men preached to the Gentiles, and most of them preached only to Jews. You have that picture? That's what was happening at this particular time. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. And then the tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came, 
and had seen the grace of God, was glad, and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they should cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. And many people were added unto the Lord. And then departed Barnabas to Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came to pass that for a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And in those days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. And then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren who dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now let's stop and pray. Our Father and our God, we pray now your blessing upon this, the reading of your word, and I pray that it will be blessed to our minds and our hearts as well as we, we learn things pertaining unto uh, to our lives in Christ and as we learn things pertaining unto heavenly things and unto the things which you have ordained that we be and do. I pray, Lord, that we will be receptive to them and that your spirit will reveal them to us in power and as well as in truth. I pray for those who are here who are not saved, who do not know Christ. I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that that they would find their joy and their relief in Jesus Christ, even this day, and escape the consequences of their sins, at least insofar as eternity is concerned, that Jesus Christ might control their lives and be the Lord of their lives and save their souls. I pray these things in his name. Amen. I'm just going to take a moment or two to talk to you about how the early Christian faith was promoted and spread and how the churches which became established in the first century were the first of a long series of those who would be like them, who would follow them. There is in the scriptures, at least insofar as, as assemblies are concerned, a continuity. Certainly there is in the, in the book of Acts. And since the book of Acts is a historical book, it would be worth our time, I think, for a moment or two to pay attention to what was happening here in terms of propagation. When we talk about propagation... In biblical terms, we're talking about two things. We're talking about the propagation of our faith and the instruments, the means by which it is propagated. So we're talking about the means as well as the end when we talk about propagation of the faith. The sole propagator of Christianity, before it was called Christianity, for a, for a period of time, was the Jerusalem church. It was the only church. And it was within that church that the power of the Holy Spirit rested and upon her members and in her members. The converts which uh, were saved through the instrumentality of that church were many. And they were, with no exceptions that I know of, they were Jews. The members of the, or, or Sumerians, who, were, who had a Jewish extraction, 
the church was a Jewish church. The whole idea of the grace of God shining upon non-Jews was a foreign idea to these members of this church at Jerusalem, to a Peter, to James, to John, to all of them. It was, it was an idea that was foreign to them. In fact, if, if you would read, if, if we would look just, in fact, I'll just read this to you. Peter had gone to the house of Cornelius, you may recall, and had given him the gospel, and his whole house was saved. And he was called into question for doing that by the church at Jerusalem. And they said to them, when, and when he came back, they said, you went in to men uncircumcised, and you ate with them, as though they had committed some great crime. And Peter reviewed the matter for them, and he explained to them what happened. And after this lengthy explanation, when they heard these, these things, according to the 18th verse of the chapter we have just read, they said, uh, then God hath also, uh, God, then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. And they finally came to that conclusion. But it took a long time. And it took a series of, of substantially supernatural events for this thing to occur. And it did occur. So now, they in the main, those who were at Jerusalem, understood that not only were Jews the recipients of the grace of God through the, through the, through the work of Jesus Christ, but also would Gentiles be. Now, they were at Jerusalem. In the meantime, this persecution had started, and all of these members who were provincial Jews and staying at Jerusalem, you remember the church at Jerusalem was comprised of a considerable number of provincial Jews. People would come for the Passover, that, for Pentecost that one time, and they stayed, and they lived communal lives in the church. Now the persecution occurred. It, didn't, it, was, it was economically as well as politically unfeasible for them to stay so they went back home that's basically what we're talking about here they were scattered back abroad from whence they came and they went to such places from which they had come Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch and other uh, Cyprus and Cyrene and all these places these provincial Jews which had come to celebrate the feast of Pentecost now they're gone they were not they were not beneficiaries of the knowledge of what happened to Cornelius they didn't know that they're already gone. But those who remained at Jerusalem, who questioned Peter for going to Cornelius' house, they understood what happened finally. And they recognized that, that the gospel was for Gentiles as well as Jews. But those who were scattered didn't. And therefore they preached only to Jews. But some, some evidently did hear or found out in some way, and they began to preach to Gentiles. And the church at Antioch, uh, the, the believers at Antioch, uh, were brought, or many believers brought into Antioch, and, and there was a church established there. You notice that there was a mission sent out. Barnabas was sent there. Paul, Barnabas sent for Paul. And there, there was a whole series of events which occurred that, that established the credentials of the Antioch church as a church. The, the church was uh, established through the blessing and probably the authority. We, people don't like to use the word authority. Authority is not a popular word. But, pro, but through the authority, through the, through the blessing and authority of the Jerusalem church was Antioch established. And, and they, they immediately, when they heard these things, it says that they sent forth Barnabas. And Barnabas went there to, obviously, to establish them into an assembly, which he did, and they became an assembly. A very powerful assembly, a very, very effective assembly, as a matter of fact. And I only want, you to, I only want to point out that, that to you, when, when Antioch was established as a church, Barnabas, Barnabas was sent out of the church of Jerusalem to assist in the doing it, and no doubt to give it the authority, and maybe even to perform baptism. Those things are not said here. But we know that all churches, 
that existed in the first century, churches which were established under the ministry of the Apostle Paul, uh, which was under the authority of this church, by the way. Paul was a missionary from the church at Antioch when he established and preached in all these other places, uh, which we'll see that a little later. And I guess the point I wish to make is that the argument that uh, one cannot prove his roots through a paper trail as being a legitimate extension of the Jerusalem church is not a valid argument because one cannot prove that he is a descendant from Adam through a paper trail, and yet we all know we are. And the reason why we know we are is because we bear the marks of Adam. And the reason why we know we are a church established in the same manner and through the same linkage as the Church of Jerusalem is because we bear the same marks. We believe the same doctrines and we practice the same practices. And, and I think probably the thing that's important for us to understand is that from the time that the middle of the first century had been reached until this time, there were those men and women and churches which began to move away from sound doctrine and practice until they moved to such a distance that they were viewed by those which did not move away from sound doctrine and practice as irregular. They were considered irregular churches, not regular, irregular. And those were expressions that were used then. In fact, that expression, uh, irregular church, was used by, re by, by believing churches well into the 4th century to delineate between themselves and others. By the time the, the, uh, third, the second century, middle of the second century came, the regular churches were beginning to view irregular churches as being part of the cult of the, Babylon, the Babylonian system. And, and, and I've, I still think that's probably an accurate, uh, an accurate view because when, when the churches became, when they moved away from sound doctrine and practice, they began to incorporate obviously unsound doctrine and unsound practices. And the unsound doctrine and the unsound practices that began to incorporate into their church life and church practices and the religious life were borrowed over from the Babylonian cultish religions of the time. And, and all the religions of the Romans and all the religions of the Greeks were Babylonian in their origination. They, were, they came directly from the events that occurred at Babel under Nimrod and carried all the way through until this very moment. And, and Christianity has, over the 2,000-year period of its existence, has incorporated many of the Babylonian cultish ideas into its religious practices so that it is not difficult for someone who believes, who really truly believes New Testament church truth in terms of what a church is supposed to be and what it's supposed to do and what it's supposed to believe, not hard for him to identify the fact that, that there is a lot of that kind of religious activity in the great realm of Christianity today. And, and I, I view, I must tell you, I'll, I'll just tell you how I think and what I think uh, as your pastor. I, I do believe that New Testament churches, and I don't know of any that aren't called Baptists, but New Testament churches uh, are the only ones who are not part of the Babylonian system. And we have to be careful that we don't fall into that trap. <clears throat> I believe that all, all the entire realm of, any person who considers himself to be a Protestant is part of the Babylonian worship system. And, I, and anybody would want to argue with me and, and take the time to talk to me, but I'll show, I'd be glad to show them why I think that. I think that the Roman Church is, I think the Eastern Orthodox Church is, 
I think they all are part of the Babylonian system. And you can see it because if you look at the Roman church and the Orthodox churches, you will see that they incorporated the old priest systems into their religion that didn't exist in the first century church and, and made a whole ritual cult out of certain aspects of the Babylonian and Jewish, both, and, and combined them both to make, a, to make a Christianity, which truly was a mongrelized religion. It's not a pure religion. Pure religion undefiled, as, as John, the, the writer of the epistle, John, the apostle, uh, said. But it was at Antioch, for the first time in Antioch, and this is a very major historical statement, that those who followed Jesus Christ were called Christians. Very first time. And, and it, meant, it, it meant a great deal for them to be called Christians. It was probably a name that was used in derision. I, I have no doubt that there were many who referred to these believers and followers of Christ in a derisive manner and called them Christians. And, and I, I doubt that any non-believer who was referring to them as Christians uh, meant that in a very complimentary way. It was a means of identifying them. And the Christians took that upon themselves. They took the name that others called them and adopted it and adapted it to themselves. So that early in our religion, in our faith, uh, from the time, from this particular moment of which we have just read, we are called Christians. Now what's happened is this. I learned this probably most graphically when Jerry and I made a trip to, to Israel 20 years ago. And there, in Israel, there is a clear line of distinction. There are three religions as far as Israeli Jews are concerned. There's the Jewish religion, or irreligion, because most of them are irreligious, but a Jewish identification. There is the Baha'i, which are very small in number, but some there. Oh, I'm four, I'm sorry. There are the Muslim, and there are Christians. When they say they say to when they said to us, "Oh, you are a Christian," because they would ask us, for example, if we would if we would call room service and we would order order something that wasn't kosher or something that had to be cooked uh, on the on Sabbath, uh, they would say they don't do it, and we'd say they'd say, "But you're Christians," and, I, and we'd have to say yes. And, and, and but what we knew when they were calling us Christians, they were they weren't defining us as being evangelical born-again Christians. That wasn't their definition of Christian. Their definition of Christian was Coptic, Byzantine, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Eastern Orthodox, Egyptian, Egyptian uh, Christianity. Any, that was their definition of Christian, Catholic. And so we spent a little bit of our time, at least with our Jewish guide, who was a young uh, native, uh, native-born Israeli, a Sabra, they call him. We uh, continually trying to define for him what we meant when we said Christian because what he meant when he said Christian was very different. To him, a Christian was what I just defined as being Babylonian in its, in its origination. That was him, that was a Christian. And he made no distinction whatsoever. By the way, just as an, as an aside, we went up, I probably told you this once before, but I'll tell you again. He was, he, was a, he was not religious at all, but he was very proud that he was a Sabra, an Israeli, and a Jew. And uh, we were with a party of uh, eight people total. We were the only non-Jewish. We were the only uh, non-Jewish people in the party, and he was a Jewish guy. And we went up to uh, the northern part, up to Capernaum, uh, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And and uh, he said, and up there is where 
Jesus is, uh, is said to have preached the Sermon on the Mount, and you know, he gave all this stuff, and uh, and he said, and he preached it in Hebrew, and I said, uh, I corrected him, and I said, no, I don't think he preached it in Hebrew. I I think he preached it in either Aramaic or Greek, and uh, he said, no, 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 he he was a Jew and he preached it in Hebrew. I said. Hebrew wasn't even a living language then. It was a it was a, a religious language then. It's a living language now in Israel, but it wasn't then. I said, no, no. I said, in fact, the, the New Testament was written in Greek. Well, he was just absolutely thought that was the most absurd thing he'd ever heard. He, 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 could, he, couldn't, he couldn't fathom that at all. And I said, well, it really was. He said, no, it was written in Hebrew. I said, okay. And I left it go at that. But the point is, and I guess the, the point that I want to make to you, is that as far as... as most people are concerned. The lines of Christianity are so blurred that all Christians are the same. And what's happened, and I think maybe you might be seeing this happen, and I want you to recognize it as the same thing happening among evangelicals, because it's happening among evangelicals. Evangelical line, uh, uh, denominations among evangelicals, the lines are being blurred considerably. And so are doctrinal distinctions being blurred. I, I, probably the best example I can give you of that is the, the, the concert of prayer meeting that's going to take place in the Colosseum, which took place in the IX Center last year. It is a major appeal to all brands of Christianity to come together under one roof and for a single purpose. And see, here's the point. The point is that if, if, if New Testament-type churches can be made to believe that the objective, that the end justifies any means to get there, they can get made to believe that, then we will become very quickly very irregular, just as they are. And, and our distinction is that we are not irregular. We are Bible-based, church-loving, Christ-loving believers and we, we love his church we because he died for his church and his church is, is going to be is going to comprise his bride and, and so we believe these things and we believe that there is a distinction between our kind of church and other churches it is the most unpopular position you could take today it wasn't unpopular nearly as unpopular uh, in this century not you know in the earlier part of this century because because uh, denominational distinctives were very real and each denomination had its own distinction and but, you, but to make those statements today is a very it's an unpopular viewpoint. And, and, and there may be some sitting here who resent what I'm saying. And, and I would expect probably that would be true because it, it, because it says, because it essentially it is saying there's a right and a wrong, and it, may be, and, and it may be interpreted by my saying these things that I sound arrogant by saying, well, we're attempting, and by God's grace we're going to stay and what we know that our forebears and they before them and they before them have considered to be right, and we're going to stay there. We're going to stay on that pathway. The, the, the numbers of us, both in, in terms of numbers of churches and numbers of believers of this truth, are a shrinking number. And one of the reasons why we are a shrinking number is because now there is a cost beginning to be connected with believing it. And that's why we're a shrinking number. And the, and the cost, primarily, that is connected with believing these things today is a cost of pressure being brought to bear 
not by religious denominations that we know are not evangelical, but by evangelical religious people. They're the ones who are bringing the pressure on us, and they're telling us how wrong we are, and how bigoted we are, and how narrow we are. We're hearing from them what we used to hear from others, and not them, but now we're hearing it from them. The price, the ante is being raised. The quality of believer who stays will improve because of the cost. But most will not pay the price because it's too expensive. In those days, being called a Christian or being a Christian carried with it a considerable price. I would like to just, if, if I could, I'd like you to refer you now to the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Because I, I, the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, in my view at least, defines the character of what a Christian in those days was like and the character of what a Christian should be like today. And because the character of a, of a believer in Jesus Christ should never change. It, the, character, the character of Christ hasn't changed and therefore the character of his followers certainly shouldn't change. In the fourth chapter of Ephesians, in the 21st verse, and I want to read down to the end of the chapter, but follow along with me, if you will, please, and, and, and take the characteristics that are, and the behaviors that are described here, and, and, and try them on to yourself. Forget about your neighbor, and forget about your friends, and just take these and fit them onto yourself. And the things which fit, if they're pluses, praise God for them. If the things which don't fit but would be pluses, ask God for them. And the things which do fit and shouldn't be and aren't pluses, ask God to remove them. Try it on. Try on this, this set of specifications, if you will. You have not so learned Christ, and if it be so that you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you have put off, that you put off concerning the former manner or conversation of the old person, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, the new person, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the things which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good in the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you.
The definition of a Christian, at least insofar as the scriptures define one, are, in the, most simp- in the simplest of terms, are that he be like Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was all of these things that we ought be and none of the things that we ought not be. You have to remember that he is our example and our perfect example. There are no flaws in his example. So we need to learn about what he was like in order that we become like him. If you don't know him, you can't become like him. And certainly if you are not indwelled of the Holy Spirit of God, you cannot bear his character or his marks. You will be unable to do it. Try as you might. You might say, well, what is the advantage of being like Christ so long as I am saved and going to heaven? Well, there are two or three answers to a question like that. The first answer I would give to anyone who would ask me that question is, well, first of all, being like Christ gives you the assurance that you are going to heaven. And if you are not like him at all, you might want to question whether or not you are saved in the first place and are even going to get there. The second answer I would give is because being like Christ and living and Christ living his life in you will give you a peaceable and contented full life. Without the aid of so many of the things that world the world offers to give you peace and harmony, to counsel your mind and your soul, without all of the stuff and things that the world will give you, to fill your mind and your heart, entertain you, or all the stuff and things that the world will give you just to possess. You could have peace and contentment in Christ that the world cannot give. In fact, the scripture says it. It says, and he will give you the peace that is beyond description, beyond the ability to understand why you even have it. But he'll give it. That's one of the reasons why a person should bear the marks of Christ for a peaceable life. And the other reason, of course, is because that is what pleases God. God is pleased with men and women and young people and boys and girls who live out their lives in the character of Jesus Christ. It is not an impossible task for those who are saved. It is an impossible task for those who are not. The 26th verse of this passage of scripture that we have just read. Uh, I would just like to make a couple of comments about it because it's often been misunderstood. Be angry and sin not, let the sun not go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Because this, this particular verse of scripture has to do with one of the more difficult parts of character to control, the mind. Some of us have a lot of difficulty keeping our thoughts under control. We find sometimes ideas and thoughts invading our consciousness that we would rather not have them there. Sometimes when they first invade, we wish they weren't there. Then after a while, we keep them there because we almost, we almost thrive better on the misery than on other things. But anger, 
anger happens for many reasons. It's, it's, I don't think that being angry in and of itself for a brief period of time is such a terrible or dangerous thing. Probably isn't even a sin. I suppose depending on what it is you're angry about. But sin takes occasion of anger. When, when, when anger, it says be angry and sin not. So obviously you can be angry and not sin. But when anger becomes sin, it converts itself into resentment. And here's, here's why it says, let not the sun go down upon your anger or upon your wrath. If you become angry about something, upset about something, angry with someone, for whatever reason, justified or not, if you do not deal with it at the throne of God's grace first, that's the first place to go with your anger, to the mercy seat of Jesus Christ, say, Lord, I have this terrible feeling, this awful anger, please remove it from me, or something like that. And you don't take care of it that way, but if you do, and it's still there, then you've got to deal with it in, in temporal terms. If someone made you angry, you have to talk to them. You should not allow the thought of your anger to be upon your mind for a day. It's got to be dealt with quickly, because here's what happens. It'll turn into resentment or a grudge, and from there it will turn into bitterness against the object of your anger, and from there it will dominate your life. It will dominate you, and other things will happen. If you don't, it says, it says you will give place to the devil. If you don't do these things, it says neither give place to the devil, neither give place to Satan. If you don't deal with it, not only will the bitterness come which will dominate your life, but all of the unpleasant things that you should disdain will begin to infiltrate your life. Your habits will change. Your attitudes will change. You will change. And one who allows that to happen to him or her will become less and less Christian or less Christ-like. That's a terrible terrible condition to fall into. Ah, we don't fall into those conditions. We allow ourselves into those conditions. It's a deliberate and willful act that gets us there because we haven't acted as we ought to keep us from getting there. Finally, the crux of the whole matter is Become easy and gracious to yourself and to one another. Be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. They were called Christians in those days. It cost them to be Christian. But Christian meant something. I can't help but think that the people who may have used the name in derision still looked upon them and said, but they're good people. Because Christians are good people. They are. New Testament Christians are good people. And that's what I wish and hope and pray that we would all be, our New Testament people, good people. Be obedient. Recognize God's authority in your life. His word is authority, his church is authority, his Holy Spirit is authority. Recognize his authority. And submit to it. Pray every day, 
Pray with discipline. Read his word. Worship in, your, in, the, in a scriptural assembly. Love God. Love one another. Be kind. If you're in that condition, you'll be an influence for Christ. If you're not, you won't. Your life, when it's all over, will be marked out for how good you were at your job or how good you were as a mother or how great you were as a father. But when we speak of eternal terms, the question will be asked, how well did you serve Jesus Christ? And that's the ultimate question that you will have to answer. Let's pray. Thank you.